The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What if you had so much stuff piled on your desk you couldn't find anything? Would it... Would it force you to get organized? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Well, you've probably heard by now about our upcoming conference. Uh, it's, ta- it's taking place in uh, Newport Beach, California, and it's happening August 28th through the 31st. And one of the reasons my desk is so jammed with stuff that I... Not even um, talking with a guest today. I'm just going through material on my desk. One of the reasons has been this conference because I'm going to be one of the speakers, uh, along with such uh, noted speakers as Robert Schwartz, who is a regression therapist, author of Your Soul's Plan: Discovering the Real Meaning of the Life You Planned Before You Were Born. Mary Neal, M.D., orthopedic surgeon, uh, near-death experiencer, and the author of To Heaven and Back. Jeff Olson, a near-death experiencer and author of um, I Knew Their Hearts and Beyond Mile Marker 80. And, of course, PMH Atwater. Uh, There are so many speakers and so many um, workshops going on that I can't possibly begin to describe them all. But it's um, one of the things that never gets discussed in our advertising of these conferences is the power of a couple hundred near-death experiencers getting together in one hotel or in one room. It's just amazing. Um, I can recall, I think the first um, conference that I went to was in San Diego, and we had a person that fell down the stairs, hurt themselves, uh, uh, not not uh, terribly, but enough that w- uh, the experiencers in one room decided to join hands and say a prayer. For, for her recovery. And what a powerful experience it was. 35 people who have had near-death experiences holding hands with each other is electrifying. And I've noticed in, in all the conferences I've gone to since then how powerful an experience it can be. So if you've been thinking, oh, well, I don't want to hear another talk or I can listen to NDE radio and get all the stories I want about uh, near-death experience or other related mystical experience. There is something so powerful about being at an actual conference, interfacing and interacting and hearing the stories and telling your story, um, uh, experiencing the workshops and different ways of communication with one another. There are opportunities as well for, if you were thinking about writing a book or doing a uh, a short film or something about your experience, you get to meet lots of people who have been there and done that, and they can give you all kinds of advice. But apart from all of that, and apart from the speakers as well, the key thing in these meetings is just the electricity and the camaraderie and the power of being with people who've seen the other side. Well, so that was the top of the list of things on my desk, but I'm going to go down now through some some other things that I came across, which I thought I'd share with you. This is a quote uh, from Thomas Merton, who wrote The Seventh Story Mountain, and uh, it's quoted in Burnham's uh, The Ecstatic Journey as well. 
But what a thing it was, this awareness. It was so intangible, and yet it struck me like a thunderclap. It was a light that was so bright that it had no relation to visible light, and so profound and so intimate that it seemed like a neutralization of every lesser experience. And yet the thing that struck me most of all was that this light was in a certain sense ordinary. It was a light, and this was most of all what took my breath away, that was offered to all, to everybody. And there was nothing fancy or strange about it. It was the light of faith deepened and reduced to an extreme and sudden obviousness. Quote from Thomas Merton. Then there's a part of a beginning of a text that I was going to use uh, in my speech. I don't know that I will do that now at the conference, but uh, I think I'll share that with you too. It was uh, headed, I believe in God, I just don't go to church. Many folks who believe in God find it increasingly disheartening that much of the discord in the world comes from self-destructing religions. For structures supposedly based on the notion that compassion and love are the qualities God seeks in us, it's rather appalling to see Sunni and Shiite Muslims literally at each other's throats, to see Catholics and Protestants still duking it out, and to see Episcopalians fighting with Anglicans over whether women and gays can be priests and bishops. Oh, and by the way, who does own that church real estate anyhow? To add fuel, there are the endless debates over the rules of dogma, how wet the body must get to constitute a baptism, who is entitled to receive communion, who you can marry, what you can eat, wear, or say, what kinds of sex and birth control you can practice, and what you're allowed to do after getting divorced. Behavior modification happens in liberal church settings as well. After being moved to thank Jesus one Easter Sunday at a Quaker meeting, I was informed afterwards that, quote, this friend's meeting does not appreciate hearing about Jesus during worship, end quote. At the far extreme, women in some eastern countries have been stoned to death for not following dress codes, for attempting to get an education or uh even for wanting to say as uh, as to uh, say in whom they're going to marry. In the past, Jews born out of wedlock were not permitted to marry. Catholic suicides couldn't be given a proper burial in a Catholic cemetery. The unwarranted shame and suffering inflicted by religions on their own members has been unlimited and unspeakable. And then there's the problem of corrupt clergy. Consider the not insignificant failings of priests, ministers, rabbis, imams, and other religious who have brought down whole congregations with their bad behavior. The people thought their clergy person had been sent by God until he or she were caught stealing from the coffers, molesting an older boy, arrested for drunk driving, or seducing the deacon's wife. Such tragedies are more common than most people think. One of the first girls I dated as a teen confessed to me that at the age of 12 she'd been raped by her Presbyterian choir master. A boy I went to school with was abused by the local Catholic priest. A closeted pedophile pastor who spoke at my ordination later jumped off a bridge after being outed by a same-sex partner. A Protestant pastor told me how he'd started out as a candidate for the Catholic priesthood but had to leave the seminary because the predominantly gay seminarians shunned him for being a heterosexual. It goes on and on and on. So what is a believer to do? 
Well, more and more commonly, it's been to quit the church, synagogue, mosque, or temple they were raised in. As a hospital chaplain, I hear more and more of the explanation from folks I visit in their rooms that they're not churchgoers, but they do believe in God. They suspect a loving God is there and that the soul continues on after death. Beyond that is a mystery they want to know more about, but just not through the structure of their church, which burned them or bored them in the past. And that generation became the parents of a generation of children who never went through the that alienation process because their parents never let them go to Sunday school or church. And so they've never experienced organized religion in the first place. Their spiritual curiosity has been diverted to video games and movies about vampires, zombies, and superheroes, replacing the contents of the Bible with the inventions of Marvel comics and the like. So the question gets asked again and again, as a chaplain makes his rounds to the sick and dying, quote, I just don't trust my religion. Tell me, where do I go from here? That may or may not be part of my talk in uh, California. Let's see. This is part of an editorial I wrote for Vital Signs. For those of you who are members of IANS, you get a quarterly magazine that I edit called Vital Signs. Um, this last issue, I think, was particularly good. The first story started about um, Edgar Casey's near-death experience and uh, with, of course, the implied um, surmise that some of or all of his abilities might have come from that. Um, vital signs. Uh, did Edgar Casey have a near-death experience? It's uh, beautifully described in notes that he dictated to uh, to one one of his um, biographers. And there's a lot of material, of course, at the Edgar Casey Institute as well. And Ian's uh, speakers have often appeared there as well. I do a um, an editorial called Out of My Tree in each issue. This one was titled, What Do We Know and How Do We Know It? And it asks this question, Would you give up the understanding of everything to wander in a semi-conscious stupor through this very dangerous world? If your answer is yes, then I have to ask, why? But if your answer is no, then what the heck are we all doing here? Buddhists say that life is suffering, this life is illusory, and our desire should be to escape the cycle of death and rebirth. Yet many of those who believe in reincarnation say we return to a life of suffering to learn lessons. But if we're wrapped in God's light and love on the other side, what more do we need? Uh, what, do, what more do we think we need to know? And how do we achieve greater wisdom for over, uh, for over there by acting like uh, selfish idiots, basically, over here? Those who have experienced NDEs and similar glimpses of the other side seem to be in agreement on this, that the brain is a necessary survival tool for this life, but a roadblock to the higher awareness of our eternal consciousness. In other words, it takes almost a complete shutdown of the brain by accident or practice in order to see the light. It seems the tool that we're given to understand with the brain is apparently the wrong tool for the job of spiritual understanding. It's a tool designed for survival here 
and thus its job is to keep us from rejoining the light of wisdom and love for just as long as humanly possible. And our brains put up a good front. We write sacred texts, create music and art, celebrate the beauty of the creation and of human nature by giving birth and raising food and animals. For those of us blessed with a degree of prosperity, this illusory world can seem beautiful indeed. Still, amidst our comforts, we know there is pain and suffering, cruelty, disease, world-fatal pollution, and unmitigated greed all around. Can we justify our happiness, given these conditions? If we could retain that heavenly knowledge of compassion and love when we came here, we could make this more like that. But we can't, or we don't, for reasons we seemingly can't overcome. We've been given a hammer to write a sonnet. And frustrated, we wind up beating on each other instead. Part of an editorial that appeared in Vital Signs. This is one which uh, I do some quotes uh, from Alice in Wonderland because it seems like chaplains uh, go down a rabbit hole or should go down a rabbit hole that's not required of uh, those dedicated to particular denominations. In fact, I start this off with a uh, a joke on a joke. A priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a blender, and how lame is this? A chaplain is the only one left to stand in the punchline. Yuck, yuck. So if a chaplain trained in seminary to be a priest, a rabbi, or a minister is now merely a chaplain, then what the heck does a chaplain possibly stand for? It turns out a truly functional chaplain is someone with more faith than dogma, more questions than answers, and the listening capacity, the patience, if you will, of a non-denominational saint. And let me skip ahead a little bit. So making the analogy of chaplains to Alice going down the rabbit hole because they're more curious than they are dedicated to the safety of their um, of the plane that they find themselves on. Alice goes down the ra- the rabbit hole, and I make this point because it's important. Following a very uh, structured and organized rabbit in a waistcoat and a waistcoat, who says to himself, oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late, and consulting his pocket watch before plunging into the rabbit hole. Burning with curiosity, as Lewis Carroll puts it, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. And that's the spirit. The chaplains have to go into a room to talk to a person they've never met before about deep theological questions. Now, there's another analogy, of course, as well, and that is the the rabbit hole is like a tunnel, and the tunnel is like the beginning of a near-death experience. So as I go on with my uh, text here, and I'm skipping some of it for, for want of time, Carol continues, the rabbit hole went straight on like a tunnel for some way and then dipped suddenly down, so suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. You can see how tempting it's been to draw parallels between my drowning experience, which was my NDE, and Alice's fall. But there are parallels between her fall and anyone's journey through the seminary. 
To continue Lewis Carroll's description, she fell, this is a quote, she fell very slowly for she had plenty of time as she went down to look about her and to wonder what was going to happen next. First she tried to look down and make out what she was coming to, but it was too dark to see anything. Then she looked at the sides of the well and noticed they were filled with cupboards and bookshelves. Here and there she saw maps and pictures hung on pegs. She took down a jar from one of the shelves as she passed. It was labeled orange marmalade, but to her great disappointment, it was empty. And she did not like to drop the jar for fear of killing someone underneath, so managed to put it back into one of the cupboards as she fell past it. Now, I've, I've talked to others, and this pretty much feels like an abstract description of the four-year fall through seminary. The empty marmalade jar is particularly telling. The jar is one of many classes full of theological promise that turns out to be an empty waste of time. One could drop the class, but out of fear of hurting some other student's faith, you continue with it until it can be properly reshelved. Not to belabor the analogy too far, but Alice finally lands and makes her way to a long, low hall. Quote, there were doors all around the hall, but they were all locked. And when Alice had been all the way down one side and up the other, trying every door, she walked sadly down the middle, wondering how she was ever going to get out again. Now, here's where drug analogies and references often come in, because Alice discovers a door she can unlock, but the only way she can fit through it is if she eats this and drinks that. But it's not the one pill makes you large or the one pill makes you small culture that's referenced here, but, quote, this is my body, this is my blood, quote, a covenant that each Christian denomination makes with its members. For the seminary graduate, then, it's pick your door and make yourself fit the dimensions of the faith you've chosen. If your mind's too big, shrink yourself down. Not enough pastoral charisma? Better eat this and puff yourself up. Simplified, this is, but you get the idea. Alice saw what she thought was a beautiful garden on the other side of the door she was fitting herself into, but what if all the doors leading to lead to the same beautiful garden? What if all the doors merely offer a partial view of the truth? Priests, rabbis, and ministers are not supposed to think this way. But what about chaplains? What if chaplains hold the key to every door leading to every part of the garden? And what if chaplains can offer a glimpse of that universal garden through any door the patient, prisoner, soldier, or family member chooses to approach? Part of a, a text for a speech I might give now or later. I'm going to follow this. This is a wonderful little quote from um, Eliada. He was a, a historian of religions at uh, Chicago University. And he writes in his thematic study of comparative religion, the two and the one, quote, Now all experiences of the supernatural light present this common denominator. Anyone receiving such an experience undergoes a change of being. He acquires another mode of being which gives him access to the world of the spirit. Even in a far westerner of the 19th century, a meeting with the light indicates a spiritual rebirth. Okay, moving on through the pile of papers on my desk. This was a very interesting article that appeared in Nature, and it answered, for me at least, a non-scientist. How does the soul leave the body, experience a near-death experience, 
return to the body and then communicate what it saw and learned through the human brain, which did not make that trip. How does the soul intelligence communicate with the brain's intelligence? Because everything we know about NDEs is, has been told to us by people through the use of their brains. How is that information from the soul that left the body communicated to the brain that now receives it? Okay, this is, this was, this was in the Huffington Post, but it came from an article in, that appeared in the June issue of Nature. Neuroscientists can breathe a collective sigh of relief. Experiments have confirmed a long-standing theory for how memories are made and stored in the brain. Researchers have created and erased frightening associations in rats' brains using light, providing the most direct demonstration yet that the strengthening and weakening of connections between neurons is the basis for memory. This is the best evidence so far available, period, said Eric Kandel, a neuroscientist at my alma mater, Columbia University of New York. Kandel, who shared the 2000 Nobel Prize in physiology uh, or medicine for his work unraveling the molecular basis of memory, was not involved in this latest study, which was published online in Nature on the 1st of June. And this is it. In the 1960s and 70s, Researchers in Norway noticed a particular property of brain cells. Repeatedly delivering a burst of electricity to a neuron in an area of the brain known as the hippocampus hippocampus, seemed to boost the cell's ability to talk to a neighboring neuron. These communiques occur across tiny gaps called synapses, which neurons can form with thousands of other nerve cells. The process was called long-term potentiation, and neuroscientists suspected that it was the physical basis of memory. The hippocampus, they realized, was important for forming long-term memories, and the long-lasting nature of um, long-term potentiation, or LTP, hinted that that information might be stored in a neural circuit for later recall. And that, um, that communication, it turns out, is done by light. And light, of course, is... What we see in that trip, light is what we respond to, light is what our souls are, and light is the way the, the light communicates with the physical brain. Going down further, here's an interesting NDE from the files of IANS. Vel- velvety dark stillness. My childhood was plagued by teeth problems. Necess- this is this is um, not me. This is the um, telling of a near-death story from the files of Ions. My childhood was plagued by teeth problems, necessitating several extractions under gas. At age 26, the dentist advised me to have the remaining teeth removed four at a time. The first session was uneventful, just as the familiar gas-induced chaotic dreams. The second session was something else. It was a revelation that changed my life. It was a timeless state, so I don't know how long I had been unconscious before I realized that I had left my body on the couch and was looking down at it through the ceiling. It meant no more to me than an old coat that I had discarded. There was no fear or confusion, just a wonderful weightlessness and freedom. I was aware of having a form of some kind that was not physical, but felt perfectly natural. I turned my attention away from the scene below, which seemed to be receding and getting smaller, 
and found myself in a velvety dark stillness. I wanted to move through it, but couldn't. I was blocked. Then I felt a protective yet powerful presence, and words came to me in a voice that was not a voice. I have no way to describe it. Telepathy is as close as I can get. It said, it's not your time, you must go back. I didn't want to, even though at that time I had everything to live for. I was newly engaged, buying a house, and my career was taking off. I began asking questions about life, death, heaven, and the universe, such things that I had never given a moment's thought about before, because I was not at all religious. The answers came immediately. Volumes of information were conveyed in just two to six words, and this is where it became, becomes impossible to explain because the answers were only clear at a level of understanding at which the mind is out of its depth. Each reply ended with, you must go back. And finally, you must fight to go back. There was a brief vision of a shimmering grid of pulsating light, and then I was back, stunned and surrounded by oxygen cylinders, a demented, demented swearing dentist, and people panicking in white coats. I was kept in a recovery room for several hours. For weeks afterward, I functioned on automatic pilot, a stranger on the planet filled with a homesickness that had stayed with me for 45 years and is powerful enough to have me in tears at times. It runs like an undercurrent just beneath the surface of my life. When I returned to the surgery to ask what had happened that day, the dentist refused to see me. The receptionist said rather nervously and obviously uneasy that I had been taken off their register and the work should be completed at a dental hospital. When I presented, pressed her further, she told me there had been a problem with the second tooth, which was still intact. But before she could say more, the dentist called her away. Throughout the experience, I felt that I was in my natural element with an expansion of consciousness unachievable while in the body. And it began decades of research toward a deeper understanding. The result? Gratitude for this life and this magnificently engineered body, utter uh, reverence for creation, and daily joy in being an eternal and infinite part of it. I have never attributed the experience to the gas. OBEs and NDEs were being reported long before anesthetics came on the scene. An NDE story from the files of IANS. Let's see if we have time for anything more. The thing is, as I open the show, when you find yourself in a room full of people who have experienced NDEs, such as the one I just read to you, the power of that presence, the power of the conversations that go on outside of the lecture halls, just the one-on-one discussions that happen. You'll go into the bookstore. We have a fantastic bookstore. offers all kinds of um, of texts on all areas of mystical experience. Uh, or is sitting in a workshop, hearing about how you can how you can communicate with the other side on a regular basis. All of these things, um, as powerful as they are, uh, just um, go unspoken. With all the talk that goes goes on, all the conversations that happen, all the speeches that happen, the power of the presence of all these souls who have been on the other side in this lifetime and come back with knowledge, uh, gifts, and uh, 
the power to articulate them, the, de- the desire to articulate them, um, especially to one another, is uh, is overwhelming. And I would really, really encourage all of you out there, if you haven't already signed up for this conference, to get on the IANDS website, I-A-N-D-S, International Association for Near-Death Studies, I-A-N-D-S dot O-R-G, and sign up. Be a part of this uh, amazing event. And I guarantee you'll want to come back uh, year after year if you do. We move the conference from place to place. Uh, next year we'll be in San Antonio. Uh, the well, one last year was in Washington, D.C. They move around because we want to make it as, po- as, as um, available, accessible to people in different parts of the country as possible. But I tell you, it's worth, it's worth the plane fare to get there. I say all this noticing that at the bottom of my pile is a uh, a Google map to uh, 900 Newport Center, the Newport Beach Marriott Hotel and Spa, where this meeting is going on. So check it out, and uh, thanks for listening, and I, I hope you'll join me next Monday for more NDE Radio.